1: I'm Melinda Hemelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome my guest, Mr. Mike Calicrate. He is an independent cattle producer, a business entrepreneur, and political activist. He is a native of Evergreen, Colorado. He earned a bachelor's degree in animal science from Colorado State University and later moved to St. Francis, Kansas, where he started farming and ranching. In 2000, he formed a value-added meat company called Ranch Foods Direct. We'll provide a link to that for our listeners. This organization processes and markets high-quality, all-natural beef in Colorado Springs, as well as over the internet. Now, since the mid-1990s, Mike has been actively involved in social and political efforts to improve the welfare of family farms and restore effective, publicly regulated markets. He was founding member of several farm advocacy groups, including the Organization for Competitive Markets. He was also a lead plaintiff in a case against the world's largest meat packer, IBP, which is now part of Tyson's Foods, alleging unfair and discriminatory marketing practices. He has won many awards and accolades for his efforts, including the Westerner of the Year Award from the Western Ranchers Beef Cooperative and the first ever Legacy Award from the Kansas Cattlemen's Association. Mike has been an advisor for the films Food, Inc. and Fresh, and he is cited in several books, including The Omnivore's Dilemma and Fast Food Nation. He is revered as the go-to expert for understanding negative consequences of trends in the modern meat industry. Mike, welcome.
0: Hey, thanks for having me on, Melinda.
1: Well, well, I'm delighted. You were on many years ago, and you really stand as my go-to expert on understanding meat markets and the injustices that lie within them and the trouble that consumers have in getting quality meat onto their plates. So I contacted you after hearing someone from the Cattlemen's Association speak about communication and media messaging, and he seemed to have a bit of a problem with Food, Inc., and I thought, wow, that's a fantastic film. I wonder why people would have a problem with that film, and he said, well, it's because it makes people afraid of their food. And you and I both know that there are some foods that we would want to be afraid of. And you get a bird's eye view of what happens on feedlots. And I want to explore that topic with you today. Okay. First of all, tell me, how did you get into ranching? What was it about it that made it your calling?
0: I grew up in a family that had a lot of agricultural background, although we only had five acres south of Evergreen, Colorado, that we had our animals and eight children and gardens and everything you could do on five acres. But I was in 4-H and, and I had my sheep and my brother had his turkeys and we had we had horses over the years and, and various all kinds of livestock. And so I got involved in 4-H and that sort of led a little bit to an interest in rodeo. And so I decided as I was in my high school years that I wanted to be a bull rider. And I was working in a local grocery store, carrying out groceries, and I ended up going to the rodeo and getting pretty excited about that possibility of being a bull rider, which led me into my college phase, which put me on a rodeo team and right on to Red Heath into his animal science class at Lamar Community College in Lamar, Colorado, and also onto a judging team that traveled all over the country. And Red Heath really inspired my interest in agriculture and in particular the cattle business. And so from Lamar, I went to Colorado State University and I got a degree in animal science, and ended up from there going out to St. Francis, Kansas, where my wife's family is from. And I built my first feedlot in 1978, three years after graduating from Colorado State University. And so that put me into the business. And then my education really started. In fact, I go back to Colorado State University now and speak to student groups, and and I tell them not to ever confuse animal science with animal husbandry. Mm. And they look at me kind of strange because these are animal science seniors at Colorado State University who have now been trained to go to work in this industrial model of livestock production or perhaps go to work for the big companies that are involved and in, in fact control meat production in this country. And I think it's such a shame that we've lost this wonderful human resource, these young people, to the industrial side of the business. But I always encourage them, don't be regretful that you have an education from CSU but try to use it in a way that rebuilds a healthier, better, more regenerative type of a food system that serves the planet, the animals, and the people, rather than just big business and, and returns on their investment.
1: So interesting that you say that because it seems that we, and when I say we, whether it's consumers or dietitians who have been taught to educate consumers about their food supply, that we are largely influenced by the industrial model. And so we talk about modern meat industry. It's almost like to do anything but take the industrial path. It's less than modern. How do we show young students and people just getting into the market what the alternatives are to the industrial model and what's wrong with the industrial model?
0: Yeah, I uh, built my vision of that alternative to the industrial model called Ranch Foods Direct here in Colorado Springs. And it was after I sued IBP for anti-competitive practices, which became Tyson, and really got blackballed from the market, I could not sell my cattle anymore. So I took a 12,000-head feedlot and turned it into about a 1,200-head operation, which included heifer development and other things, just trying to keep some semblance of cash flow going. But I realized that, honestly, we don't have a pathway currently to the alternative for most people who raise livestock if you raise any number of livestock, you do not have a market. You've got to be part of somebody's supply chain, whether that might be Whole Foods or whether it's Tyson, Cargill, JBS, or Smithfield. Perhaps you're a contract grower, which is one of the most abusive places you can be at in today's agriculture. And so it's very, very difficult. We have to build the alternative, but we have to control the predators that are currently in the market that absolutely don't want that alternative to exist, and they will do whatever they can to eliminate any possibility of, of its success. And I'm talking about the construction of public markets. I love what John Eichert talks about. The public really needs to own some infrastructure in the form of sort of a public utility to where now we can get animals processed, we can get them into a marketplace within a community with preference for local rather than disadvantages for local And so I I just think we've got a lot to do before we can really tell young people, hey, there's great opportunity here for you to get into agriculture, perhaps into livestock production, to be able to sell at a price above your break even. That isn't happening at all today. We've got imported meat today coming in at 30 to 50 percent below our cost of production and below the cost of production where it was originally sourced, perhaps in South America. And then that meat now crosses the border and is entitled to get a product of the USA label upon repackaging. It's insane. We have allowed rotten meat to come into the United States from JBS and other South American packers, knowing full well that was crossing our borders and our Food Safety Inspection Service did absolutely nothing about it. And when they were forced to stop letting that meat in, the administrator for Food Safety Inspection Service, Al Almanza, quit and went to work for JBS, the company that was benefiting through his lack of blocking that product from entering. And so we've got a lot to do to, to build this alternative pathway. Yeah, It's not safe. It requires way too much capital. And we just honestly, to invest heavily in it without a plan of connecting directly to the consumer, like we do with Ranch Foods Direct, is really a fool's game. It doesn't reward the investor.
1: Well, I couldn't agree more. And I really think that what we're talking about falls under the umbrella of homeland security and food security with regard to we're dealing with serious climate issues. And I think that the only sustainable direction truly is to relocalize and re-regionalize our food system. And that includes rebuilding the infrastructure that we need. And at the same time, Mike, we're seeing a very anti-meat sentiment growing because we're looking at just this industrial model, which is not good in terms of climate. But when we have grazing animals, when we have smaller herds, when we don't have this concentrated waste that we have to manage, it seems to me that we could help prevent some of the climate damage and sequester carbon back into the soil. So I hate to see this outright turning away from meat consumption. I think that we are indeed omnivores by design but it's the quality of the meat that we consume and it's being educated consumers to know the difference. I want to ask you, if I go into a supermarket, which is where most people buy their meat, how much of a choice do I have at the supermarket? Are we just seeing really illusions of choice?
0: You have no choice to buy what someone like myself would produce, what someone like Will Harris or Greg Gunthorpe perhaps would produce. That is not going to be in those supermarkets that a typical consumer might run into. Now, you might find white oak pastures in a few Whole Foods stores, perhaps, or some others, but Will's having a bigger challenge all the time maintaining shelf space because of the cheaper imported product. I mean far cheaper imported product. And so in my region, there is no choice. It is nothing but the big meat packers' meats that are produced under the hyper-industrial processes that they have implemented And yet, when you look at those labels, it looks like you have choice, but it is truly only the illusion of choice. For example, in Colorado, we've got JBS selling what they call a local beef product under the name of Aspen Ridge. That product is right out of the JBS meat plant in Greeley, Colorado. We've got another brand that JBS produces out of the Greeley plant, which is one of the biggest meat slaughterhouses in the world, owned by the biggest meat company in the world, it's called Gold Canyon. It's sold under the Shamrock brand. So the consumers are really being swindled. Consumers are not given the information they need, and they're becoming tired because they just can't figure it out. And we talk a lot about food fraud these days. It's never, never been worse. And one of the encouraging things that I've seen here recently, and I need to check on the status of the case, but in Florida, the attorney general sued a restaurant chain for claiming armed a table on their menu when, in fact, that was not true and is not true. And so we got to see where that case goes. But there needs to be a lot more accountability. There needs to be a lot more truth in advertising. And there needs to be a lot better law enforcement around proper labeling.
1: Absolutely. And I was so saddened when we lost country of origin labeling. You know, you mentioned how we import this cheap meat. And if you listen to the industry, what they say is, well, consumers need to be able to buy cheap protein And I say, no, consumers need to be able to afford the kind of quality meat that they want to feed their families and still support the ranchers and farmers who are producing it. So I think we're really talking about a much deeper economic problem where people just aren't earning a living wage. But still, let's talk about this country of origin labeling. What happened to that? And how can consumers tell where their meat is coming from when they go to the supermarket?
0: Well, we never did get the country of origin labeling we wanted. We wanted it for all meats, regardless of whether you were eating at a fast food place or whether you were buying it at a grocery store's retail market. We wanted it labeled clearly so consumers could make a choice. It ended up only being applied to meat at retail meat counters in the big box stores and otherwise. And so we didn't get what we wanted, but we had some semblance of it. Well, when JBS was working on getting the border open to Brazil and to South America, which they were able to accomplish under Secretary Vilsack, which would have meant a flood of cheap South American meat into our country. They knew country of origin labeling was going to be a potential barrier to them. So they got real busy politically, and they made it happen. They got a repeal of country of origin labeling. And it's interesting to know the politics. The Speaker of the House, John Boehner, Orchestrated the repeal of country of origin labeling through the House. Pat Roberts on the Senate Ag Council orchestrated it through the Senate on behalf of and to the benefit of, in particular, JBS, the biggest South American meat packer in the world. And so John Boehner got it done, and right after that law was repealed and JBS was happy, John Boehner submitted his resignation from the House and the Speaker's position and was assigned to the board and took a seat on the board of the JBS Board of Directors. Wow. And so this is what you're dealing with. So it's beef and pork that were repealed. The others were left alone. On the pork side, we had WH Group that came in and bought Smithfield Corporation, our biggest pork processor. And it was in their interest that they're not be labeling on pork. And so they were successful in getting that done on pork as well as beef. And so consumers... And U.S. citizens don't get the laws that benefit them. They get the laws that benefit global corporations, global corporations that search the world for the cheapest of everything exactly. and then import that into the highest-consuming markets, which today is still the United States of
1: America. Yeah. Let me take one moment, Mike, uh, and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, we are speaking with Mr. Mike Calicrate. He is a farmer, a rancher, he is an advocate. He is on the board of the Organization for Competitive Markets and indeed was a founding member of several farm advocacy groups. Also, he has received the Westerner of the Year Award from Western Ranchers Beef Cooperative and the first-ever Legacy Award from the Kansas Cattlemen's Association. When I first reached out to you, Mike, I had a bone to pick about recalls. I happen to sign up for all kinds of notifications whenever there is a recall, And I see these tremendous amounts of beef in particular being recalled. And I'm so concerned because I think not only of the waste at the meat level, but I think about the lost life of the animal, the grain, the grass, the water, the natural resources, the packaging, the fuel that went into producing this meat. And then we see these incredibly large recalls where meat is being either brought back to the store, being put in landfills. And I think we've got to stop this waste stream. And I think that the industrial model really contributes. If you've got a small producer and you've got a problem, maybe you, you lose some meat, but you don't lose tons of meat.
0: Yeah, that's right. And the whole false economies of scale that was promoted to push industrial agriculture on everyone and industrial meat processing as well is also given us these massive scale recalls. And one of the problems you've got when you're running a chain at a slaughterhouse, killing a beef animal every eight and a half to nine seconds with inexperienced workers with high turnover rates and low skills is you get ingestive material, you get manure on the meat. And rather than slow down and do a better job of getting a good clean dressing on that animal, they're saying, we'll deal with it with interventions like steam pasteurization, acid washes various things that that they try to do to kill those pathogens on the carcass, but they simply aren't 100% effective. And so you're seeing a lot more contaminated meat going through these big slaughterhouses. And the problem you can run into is they can catch some of this contamination at the slaughterhouse before it leaves and, and enters the stream of commerce. But if they don't catch it, it's a huge problem because they produce so much, a tonnage of meat every single day through these plants. We had a 20 million pound recall at the ConAgra plant in Greeley, which is now JBS, clear back in 2000, and it was months before they finally accepted where that meat was coming from. Even though they had been told precisely which plant it came out of, USDA was refusing to listen to John Munsell in, in Montana, who had traced it his contaminated meat back to the Greeley establishment. And so we have a government that is really in bed with these big meatpackers. They are encouraging the big slaughterhouses because they are bought into the economies of scale and efficiencies argument. In fact, many of these people in these agencies, including Food Safety Inspection Service, perhaps hope to get a job with JBS, Cargill, that pays very well after their retirement, which is exactly what happened with Al Almanza in his Position with Food Safety Inspection Service when he went to work for JBS after the repeal of country of origin labeling and after letting their rotten meat into our country a hundred days after the entire world had shut it off, and so it's really a cooperation between a broken USDA that prefers the big slaughterhouses over the small local regional slaughterhouses, which run much much slower chain speeds with more highly skilled labor. They produce a far superior product than the big plants, and yet we discriminate against those small plants every single day through the inspection and the onerous rules that USDA puts onto these small plants that are totally unnecessary with this paperwork and this hazardous analysis, critical control approach to inspection. And meanwhile, we're taking inspection out of the big plants and allowing them to self-inspect, and we're concentrating even more scrutiny And being even more onerous to the kind of plants that would best serve the public, that being the local regional type plants that are almost non-existent now.
1: Yeah. So I also want to talk about what we can do, because you've got a great newsletter. It's called the Noble Food News, and we'll absolutely provide a link to that. We want to have a link to ranchfoodsdirect.com so that people can stay up to date on these issues. And I think that the Organization for Competitive Markets is another excellent website, which I'll also provide, because I think people surely will be outraged when they hear about what's happened to our food system, and they'll want to take action. But so often we feel like, gosh, what do we do? What's the first step?
0: Right. I'm glad you mentioned the Organization for Competitive Markets. We formed that organization 20 years ago, and we've fought as hard as we can for competitive markets. And I love what Elizabeth Warren said this week on her town hall on CNN when asked about self-sufficiency or in regards to this word about socialism, and and the guy was asking questions about competition and markets, and Elizabeth Warren said, I love markets, I love competition, but we need markets that work. And she said, markets without rules is theft. And so the basis of the Organization for Competitive Markets is to maintain competition So that if you raise cattle, pigs, chickens, whatever, agricultural products, that you actually have a fair market for what you're producing. And today, that market does not exist at any level. It simply does not exist. And in beef in particular, we've lost well over 30% of our share of what consumers spend for beef at the grocery store. Mm -hmm. And when you consider that at the Walmart meat counter, that steer or heifer is worth $3,300. You know, that's $1,000 ahead that we have reduced the income by for ranchers and farmers that are producing our cattle. And at the same time, we're asking these ranchers and farmers to do more regenerative practices to sequester carbon instead of generating greenhouse gases. And these are the people who can fix our climate, and yet we have our foot on their neck, making them produce below cost of production and giving them no hope whatsoever of improving their farming and ranching practices to truly benefit the people of the planet.
1: Mm. Yeah, I could not agree more. In fact, you wrote an article way back in January of 2013 in which you make that link between having animals that are well cared for and grazing and using them as a way to help heal the climate. In fact, I'm going to provide a link to this article. It's, it's titled, Pastured Animals Deserve Good Care and Good Nutrition. And it hits on everything that matter for public health and climate change. You also speak about when we give animals too much corn, what happens is that they require antibiotics. And I think that most of us would prefer to eat meat that has not been given antibiotics and hormones. How common is that in a typical industrial, quote-unquote, modern feedlot operation?
0: It's basically universal, and it's because of the method of production. Corn isn't bad. It's the amount of corn that we're feeding. It's a matter of whether it's a GMO corn or not. Feeding traditional corn isn't bad, but it needs to be the right balance with the right roughage content to where the, it works for the rumen and doesn't cause stomach upset and acidosis. And so to offset the acidosis issue with feeding too much corn, because corn is the cheapest ingredient on an energy basis, they started to use things like ionophores, like rumensin and Bovatech, which are antibiotics. And the other impact of the acidosis and stomach upset of cattle that are fed too much corn or too many carbohydrates in their diet is you get liver abscesses. Well, Mm -hmm. to address liver abscesses, they feed Tylen, which is a human-use antibiotic. And so there is a very widespread practice, it's almost universal, that we feed low-level subtherapeutic antibiotics to livestock that are fed high levels of grain in their diet, which is basically all the pork production in the country and essentially all the poultry production in the country and beef production as well. But this is all about chasing the low cost of production, and if you're not the low cost producer, you are out of business. We've lost 75,000 of our independent feedlots that were family farm feedlots on an Iowa farm that grew good feed, good grain, good corn and grass for cattle, fed it to those animals and put the manure back on the land. Those are the feedlots that have been driven out of business because they've been denied market access and likely because they couldn't compete with the low-cost producer, which was using all of the technology that not only hurts the animal, but also hurts the quality of the meat. It reduces the tenderness. It reduces the flavor. It reduces our ability to digest when you use these aggressive performance-enhancing drugs on these animals, in particular the hormones and the steroids. Mm.
1: So in terms of getting quality meat, into, say, schools and institutions. How can that happen?
0: Well, first of all, you have to find some schools that care about nutrition with students. The District 11 school district here in Colorado Springs, which we supplied ground beef to four or five years ago, along with four other school districts in Colorado, informed me after they told us they would be replacing us with a cheaper product, that their responsibility was to educate children, not feed them. So we have to get the attention of the schools again. That is the school, in fact, that was leading the nation in the good food project, which they gave up and they no longer use. And so to get into the institutions is very, very difficult because the big food companies are saying they have just exactly what the small producers have, except it's cheaper. And so it gets yeah. back to the food fraud, it get, but it does provide the cover for these school districts that are always trying to save money. It does provide them cover for buying industrial product for the students.
1: Mike, we just have a minute left. What's your last message for our listeners?
0: I don't want to discourage people because I know it's really, really easy to get discouraged as we get more knowledgeable about our food system, but I want to encourage people to get involved politically, get involved at the local level where they live to give farmers and ranchers access to the market, support those farmers and ranchers where you live somehow, some way. We need a lot more public markets, and we need a lot more help from the public in rebuilding this critical infrastructure to make sure we're fed well. And you've got
1: excellent resources online. So again, I want to remind our listeners that www.ranchfoodsdirect.com is a place where you can go for good quality meat to learn about how to be more politically active, certainly the Organization for Competitive Markets, and also the No Bull Food News by Mike Calicrate is an excellent source. It helps keep me up to date. So in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to thank producer Dan Hemelgarn and the recording studios at KOPN in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And most of all, I want to thank my guest, Mr. Mike Calicrate. He is a marvelous, thoughtful farmer. Rancher, independent cattle producer, business entrepreneur, and political activist. He was a founding member of several farm advocacy groups, including the Organization for Competitive Markets. He has been awarded Westerner of the Year and the first ever Legacy Award from the Kansas Cattlemen's Association. He has been an advisor for the films Food, Inc. and Fresh. He is cited in several books, including The Omnivore's Dilemma and Fast Food Nation. And he is my go-to expert for understanding all of the negative consequences of the trends in the modern industrial meat industry. Mike Calicrate, thank you so much for being my guest.
0: Thank you, Melinda, for the opportunity.